This was Trump's virus. He was essentially the carrier and the vector of it. <laughs> and therefore, he had to be ritualistically expelled, you know, through the election and then by being banned from social media. This would be the kind of cathartic, sacrificial <laughs> ending, right. right? But then, of course, it didn't work out that way, right? right. All right, what's up, everybody? This is Other Life. I am Justin Murphy. I just wanted to let you know that I write a free newsletter to thousands of people every week. It's where I publish my best work, I share events that you can come to, and much more. We have an insane private community around the newsletter, and it's free. Go check it out. Just go to otherlife.co. That's otherlife.co. When you subscribe, I'm going to send you a folder of PDFs that contain all of my personal highlights from a bunch of my favorite books that I've read over the years. So you'll get a million insights after just a few minutes of browsing these PDFs, really. They're really special to me, and I just figured I'd share them with you all. So that's otherlife.co, otherlife.co. All right, Jeffrey. So you taught the first cohort of the Gerard course about a year ago, and you're back here in Austin to re-record some of the videos for the Gerard course. So I thought it'd be fitting to start off this conversation with a little bit of some discussion around Gerard. Uh, people might be surprised to learn that Gerard actually had viewpoints on the pandemic before it even happened, on pandemics in general. So I want to ask your opinion and your reading about uh, a, a particular comment that Gerard makes in this his final book, Battling to the End. In this series of conversations, he says, A plague epidemic always symbolizes a group's imminent demise and the advent of violent general reciprocity in which each is the rival of the other. Plague is a symbol and symptom of the loss of differences. Sophocles could not have found a better image in Oedipus the King to reveal the genesis of all institutions, the point where violence spreads through the group like a virus that only vaccination by sacrifice can stop. What did he mean by this? <laughs> right. So to start off, the plague is... And, and it's important to note, you know, he says it always symbolizes a group's imminent demise, but a plague for Girard is always real, right? In other words, he didn't, you know, he didn't see it purely as a symbol, right? It's a real, you know, biological phenomenon. But it is also um, symptomatic of and um, in, in many cases also becomes a metaphor for you know, broader social crises, right, in which uh, a society can no longer um, achieve a kind of cohesion or coalesce. And, and so the plague, um, it, you know, it, it, it has a couple of different relations to this process in his account, right? For one thing, and he says this a few lines later, pandemics tell us something about human relations which can now be reduced to what might be called global trade, um, so basically the idea here is that, and, and this is not an unfamiliar notion with regard to COVID that, you know, it is a symptom of globalization, right? And that means that it's a symptom, it's a, it's a, it's a symptom and a result of the, the world's societies and cultures being mixed up, right? Of, of, of them constantly intermingling and there being a kind of process of undifferentiation, right? And so the plague, you know, comes about literally because of this, right? And this is the mechanism by which plagues spread. But for Girard, and interestingly, you know, this is a major point that, um, you know, perhaps his most famous student, Peter Thiel, took from him, 
that globalization, right, which was heavily celebrated as a sort of process by which the world could be united and harmonized, right, is actually a, a, a potentially extremely destructive process because it brings about this kind of undifferentiation. And for Girard, um, the function of differences, the social function of differences is to limit conflict, right? So this is basically the idea that if you have people who, you know, in some sense know their place within a society or within a particular part of a society, then the the number of other people in which into you know with which they will come into conflict is is limited inherently by that. So right. this this goes against. I mean, this is another key Girardian insight that the the threat for conflict comes not from difference but from sameness. Right? right, and as people compete to be basically more and more like each other, yeah, they become more and more similar. Everything. This is the removal of differences that you're referring yeah. to, which essentially increases the probability of something like pandemics. Essentially, right, right, <laughs> yeah. But then also the but then the pandemic also, you know, it kind of embodies this undifferentiation, right? Because it it literally passes from one person to another and thereby, you know, reveals this kind of permeability between them, right? Which right. which for Girard also has a psychological aspect in the context of kind of violent rivalries. Um, you know, this kind of impermeability in which two people become doubles, right? They, they become, you know, in, in the process of violent rivalry. You know, he argues the more and more people become each other's kind of enemies or nemeses, they also become more and more the same, right? Right, because they're basically becoming interchangeable. Yeah. And when we talk about uh, global trade being this vector of pandemic possibility, what we're really talking about, I think, is uh, it's it's never before been easier for money and symbols to flow between people across space, right? right. So we're just talking about the downside of that. The pandemic is kind of like the, the obverse of the internet in a way, right? It's like everything that's good about the global internet um, there's a bad version of that also, which is plague, pandemic, um, but that you only you only get that kind of mass transmittability when you have everyone uh, kind of standardized into essentially equivalent units that that are yeah. interchangeable, right? If you had a large number of independent cultures um, with 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 spaces between them of of genuine difference, yeah. then just nothing is really going to be able to travel that fast, mm-hmm. in, including including bad things like pandemic. Right. Right. And then, I mean, picking up on what you just said, you know, the other thing that's interesting here is that and that, you know, another kind of indifferentiation that we've seen in the past few years is the way that biological contagion and sort of um, mimetic contagion, mm-hmm. um, which would be slightly different from mimetic contagion, but although a, a, an example of it, um, it have become mixed up, right? That, that, um, the virus itself, you know, it spread around the world was sort of in some ways preceded by the even more rapid viral spread of, of memes about around, the virus, about the yeah. virus <laughs> right? Which then shaped the way, you know, countries and individuals and so on and, and continues to shape the way countries and individuals, um, responded to it. And so this, you know, was, was kind of, a I mean, is I think another level of of this process that he doesn't um, that he doesn't quite get into here, but that you know follows the same kind of logic, right? Mm-hmm. Because right. 
then the other thing that becomes undifferentiated is, you know, essentially the virus itself and various kinds of information about it. Right. Do you think there's something more to be said about this idea uh, relating to institutions, specifically this idea that yeah. um, it's, it's a very Freudian idea, right? That at, at the founding of any institution is this kind of repressed secret violence. It yes. basically yeah. takes that directly from Freud, more or less. Um, and he seems to be suggesting that in plagues, uh, something about this kind of repressed violence becomes apparent or something like that. Yeah. That what he, that's what he's saying. He's saying it's, it symbolizes a group's imminent demise. Yeah. Um, and Oedipus the King was, was the best image possible to reveal the genesis of all institutions. So it's almost as if the founding violence of institutions is becoming laid bare in, in pandemic or plague contexts. And that kind of rings true, doesn't it, in, yeah. a, in a way, yeah. right? It's like uh, a lot of dirty laundry is somehow coming coming to light yeah. uh, in the chaos and the turmoil of, of, of the pandemic. So do you think that's what he's saying, basically? Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, the, the other point is that, um, you know, the reveals the genesis of all institutions, right? So, I mean, part of the point here is that there's a you know, there's a kind of cyclical process he's describing here, which is that, you know, these institutions are founded through, as he accounts for it, this kind of sacrificial violence. Now, he links that to vaccination for a very specific reason, which is that, you know, the the, the, the logical, I mean, the logic of vaccination and the mechanism of vaccination is to take a small amount of some pathogen right. and use it to inoculate against the deadly version of the same pathogen, right? right? So the so sacrifice in Girard's account, and he explains this in Violence in the Sacred at length, is, you know, follows the same logic of vaccination. What it does is takes um, a, a small amount of, you know, the, the crisis, the plague is violence, right? It's kind of this generalized violence of all against all that threatens to consume the society. And so a properly administered sort of sacrificial um, violent act can in some way um, inoculate the society against the, um, against the, the, the larger plague of, of generalized violence. Right, right. right. This is but, the, the Greek pharmakos, right? The, it's right, the, exactly. The poison yeah. and the cure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Right. So this is the, yeah. And, and he, you know, discusses that a few lines later. Um, both remedy and poison, guilty of disorder and restorer of order. So basically the point here is that um, at these moments of crisis, on one hand, the uh, this violent origin potentially becomes, as you were suggesting, visible and, and controversial again, right? Right. Um, and, you know, this this makes the, the sort of functioning of the order more difficult to sustain, right? right. Because its founding myth has been in some way demystified. Right, right. right. But at the same time, um, what happens is that, you know, there's, I mean, and this pertains to archaic societies in his account, right? There's also a progression towards a kind of new sacrificial expulsion that in some way allows for the order to be restored, right? And so, you know, at some point he says you know, the sort of omega of one cycle is the alpha of the next. Right. right. Um, now, you know, we'll probably get into the Christian dimension of this, but this is, you know, part of why I, in, in his reading, Christ would say I'm the alpha and the omega, right? Because, um, it, you know, it, it the, the idea is that the, the sacrificial victim who whose death enables a kind of pacification 
um, becomes the, you know, so is the omega of that process, right? The, the concluding point of that cycle of violence. Right. Then becomes the alpha of the next process, right? Becomes the kind of tutelary god or whatever. Right. In pre-Christian societies, this is the, the, the victim becomes the god in the myth later. Yeah. So the, the scapegoat or the sacrificial victim in pre-Christian religions were precisely the entities who were then uh, lionized and valorized as gods in those, yeah. in those uh, societies' myths. Is, is what how how Gerard right. reads it. Yeah. So would the equivalent be for today? <laughs> you know, it's like uh, uh, people who are being you know socially pressured to get vaccinated. Are are they like the? Mm, are they yeah. in a way? Are they in a way? Uh, you know, uh, the, some weird skewed sense of our uh, you know scapegoat or something mm-hmm. like that in, yeah. the, in the pandemic context. Is that how you read it? Absolutely. I mean, I think yeah, and this this kind of goes back to an earlier point about you know what I think is valuable about this whole passage about plagues is that it it gives us a picture that's very different from the ideas that um that have come out you know particularly the kind of liberal and left intellectuals who have you know um dominated a lot of i suppose the kind of um orthodox discussion of of covid um you know have kind of presented this idea that you know this was somehow an opportunity to um come together to create this new kind of solidarity right right and they, you know, they, they, I think, genuinely believed that um, the nature of this crisis was such that, you know, um, everyone would somehow recognize it and thus, um, you know, d- decide that the, the social, you know, the, the value of the, of the kind of um, social whole was uh, greater than that of their individual desires and needs and therefore would be willing to, you know, sacrifice in order to do that right so and you can find this in like um i mean zizek and you know i mean you know some smart people have made versions of this argument right but the reason why it's wrong is not i mean the reason why it's wrong is is empirically easy to demonstrate which is that you know at every point that argument right for uh you know, the need to come together was always premised on designating a scapegoat, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, at the moment at which you say that, what happens is um, whoever does not, you know, sufficiently, you know, sacrifice in order to, um, you know, work towards the benefit of the, the whole um, is immediately treated as a danger and a vector of contagion, right? right. And so, you know, this is what a sort of Girardian account would lead us to expect, right? Which is that, you know, this attempt to construct a new kind of cohesive whole cannot be achieved without designating some scapegoat, right? Um, and in fact, that is exactly what we've seen at every point, right? <laughs> okay, okay, fascinating. So I think we'll we'll probably circle back to Gerard here and there throughout this yeah. conversation, but because you you have been paying a lot of attention to the pandemic and you've been right, you've been commenting on it from the beginning from a kind of unique angle from from a more humanities driven angle you know a lot of the the commentators you see who have kind of risen to the top of the discourse are often talking about epidemiology or they're talking about you know uh, public policy or, or public health. And you've been commenting all along from from the humanities perspective. You've been writing about the pandemic from the viewpoint of Gerard, from the viewpoint of uh, Ivan Illich, from the viewpoint of, uh, you know, Baudrillard and these, and these different types of characters. So um, I would love for you to give us just a kind of high level bird's eye view of how do you, what was the pandemic? What, you know, 
what's what's your overall assessment of what was that thing that just happened to us over the past couple of years? Looks like hopefully maybe is 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 going away. We'll see. Um, but what's your what's your what's your high level read on on it? Yeah. So I mean, the I, I suppose the first thing I would say is that you know w- would be to reiterate the point I made before, which is that you know it's it's probably the first such event in which the the virality of you know the, the sort of bio, biological virality of the you know of covid itself had this correlate in the kind of you know various like info viruses that sort of right. spread alongside it right. right and and this you know i mean it it, it it this is part of what makes it very hard to discuss i think because it's always very difficult to figure out whether what you're talking about is some actual biological reality or some kind of some kind of informational complex that's been, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that's that's either emerged. I mean, that, that sometimes emerged from institutions, from governments, from um, you know, essentially propaganda, or in some cases, that's emerged from you know, kind of these more spontaneous um, collective activities taking place on the internet, right? So I think part of what's difficult to talk about and to at, even answer that question of what was this. Is that what do we mean by what was this? Do we mean what was the actual sort of biological contagion, or do we mean what was that plus this whole extremely complicated, multi-layered kind of informational complex that developed around it? Yeah, um, and, good, it, and, the, and then is it possible to actually synthesize an account that that accounts for both of those, right? Which I think would be the ideal way to approach it. But so go for it. There, but there's a kind of. Um, I mean, okay, so, I mean, you brought up Baudrillard. You know, I, I could bring in a couple different perspectives that I've brought to bear on Let's it at go. different points. I mean, you brought in, you know, you brought in, um, you mentioned that I, I've been thinking particularly about Baudrillard lately. You know, he's best known for this notion of hyperreality. So hyperreality is is understood as, I mean, it is popularly understood as something like the Matrix or whatever. <laughs> That's not really what he was going for. Um, in fact, what he was going for was something like what I just described, right? Which is that you have such a penetration of the kind of logic of information, although he doesn't really use the term information, into um, the operations of the real world that they become essentially inseparable, right? Yeah, it's so, not too hard to understand, right? In yeah. this context, like we're seeing it, right? So, what uh, some public health, what some public health official says in the U.S. government, can literally change the behaviors of millions of people, yeah. um, and how people respond to those behaviors, thus literally changing the course of how a biological entity spreads, right? Yeah. So, it's this isn't this isn't even like abstract anymore. It's yeah. like you are, you right, can actually right, right. watch it. Sure. Yeah. And and so you know I mean you know he's he's known you know he's best known for this book simula- simulations and simulacra, mm-hmm. and you know th- th- when he's talking about simulations there, he's not necessarily talking about sort of VR type simulated reality. He's I mean he's thinking just as much of um, you know the kind of simulations that were used by epidemiologists throughout this process, right? To kind of you know. You you enter some sort of inputs that you know reflect some assumptions about the um, the the course that the the virus would take, and then you you generate some kind of graph or set of graphs that that represent that right. And then you know these were extremely um, you know pivotal in defining the sort of political response right um, from the earliest stage. 
And, you know, so, so what this means is that, re I mean, to use a Baudrillardian phrase, like reality, the, re the whole reality of this virus as we have experienced it has been sort of contaminated by its simulacrum, right, at every point, right? right? It's, it's not, you can't, you can't really separate them out because, um, and, and part of what's interesting about the logic of simulation is that, and this, particularly this kind of predictive simulation, and, and simulation is... I mean, by its nature as a technology, it is it is going to be used for predictive purposes, right? That's its function. So what it does is say, um, and and particularly the way it's been used politically is to say, you know, here's how many. If you can look at um, Imperial College London, right, did these these very influential charts where they showed like, oh, if you do you know X, Y, and Z policy interventions, here's like the case curve. If you do X, Y, and Z plus A, B, and C policy interventions, here's the case curve. And the point is, you know, this was then used to inform the actual policies that were undertaken mm -hmm. um, in the U.S. and the U.K. And th the problem with this, of course, is that it, it's, it's non-falsifiable because, you, you know, once that has been done, the, the reality that was simulated um, by its, you know... Um, by necessity, will never come into being, right? right? Because the function of it is to um, essentially provide the basis for interventions that will prevent the situation represented by the sim by the the simulation to ever come about, right. right? And so what that means is, I mean, this is like this kind of implosive effect where um, what it does it's it's not the same logic of representation that we sort of think of classically, right? Where you have some pre-existing state of affairs and then you have some attempts to capture it representationally, right? Because the temporality of it um, and, and its, its attempt to kind of preempt reality, mm -hmm. um, it means that it will lead to interventions that prevent it from ever existing as an actual... Yeah, there's, there's, there's no longer right. any independence between the yeah. measuring rods and the things being measured. Yeah. Right. Because in the measurement and in the communication of those measurements, you immediately affect the thing that you're measuring is, right. is one simple way to put it. Yeah. And this is now happening at a massive scale with, with really large magnitudes, basically. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And it raises fundamental questions about, like, how do you even do something like public health um, in this kind of context? Now, here's an interesting layer, which I'd love to hear your thoughts on. I have a sense that elites know this basically, right? And and part of the problem that we're seeing is that most elites are smart enough to understand the realities that we're talking about. But knowing it, they kind of think it through the lens of a kind of like platonic noble lie framework, right? Yeah. So they're thinking as as, you know, the people that are responsible for public order and public safety is they're thinking we have to carve out our messages in a way that is going to produce the best public health outcomes, yeah. which gives them a license to basically say things that might not be fully true. Yeah. Um, but in a way, they're they're using like a Baudrillardian justification <laughs> right, for right, doing right. so in a, in a way, yeah. right? Um, but then people realize that that's what's going on. So then people just don't no longer trust the, the public health messaging, right? Yeah. So, you know, there's, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that or if, if that's interesting that probably the elites have these mental models as well. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of doing, are they doing the best that they can, you know, given those realities? Um, or is it just kind of mostly self-serving political kind of venal motivations? Yeah. I mean, I would say, and you know, and this is where maybe I'd sort of go beyond what you'd necessarily find in Baudrillard. I mean, I think there is a, there is a kind of set of class interests 
at stake here, mm-hmm. right? And that there there's a way that these technologies um, of simulation again are the technologies of a certain kind of sector of society, which um, which realizes, as I think you're saying, that it's it's kind of authority and power depends on operating in something like this way, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would say, I think they're on some level conscious of it, um, you know, and, and, you know, whatever, I'm never, I'm never that interested in like, do they really mean well or not as a question? Uh, you know, it's, it's right. I don't even know what that means, but, but I think they are doing things that objectively, um, I mean, it's it's complicated, right? They're they're doing things that objectively have enabled them to expand the scope of their <laughs> yeah. powers, yeah. right? Um, on the other hand, I think there is also a way that um, you know. Th- th- so on one hand, there's been a massive expansion in the scope of the powers of this kind of expert class. On the other hand, I'm not sure that it. I mean, I mean, I think it's also redounded to the detriment of their sort of. Um, authoritativeness, right? Of the degree to which right. people accept them as legitimate. Um, well, I guess what I'm wondering is, in some ways, is this just the end of the very possibility of centralized public health yeah. messaging or something like that? Because yeah. I, I agree, it's not a matter of, you know, are they good people or are they not? What are their motives? Mm-hmm. But it's more a question of, um, is there anything that a honest and responsible public health representative could even do? Really, right, like in right, the, in right. this highly reflexive, mimetic kind of global planetary uh, context, yeah, is it just is it just doomed? And 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 now by necessity, we all are going to be uh, moving into these like niche communities of sense making, where all public signaling is kind of like discounted to zero, and we just make our own decisions based on the people around us that we trust. And it's going to be this like proliferation of, of, of niches around the world in, in, in some ways, maybe a kind of uh, pre-modern uh, differentiation, right? Like mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. to go back to the Girardian things we were talking about, you know, how do you, how do you see the, the upshot of all of this? Like what, yeah. what is the big collective lesson? Do you think? Hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that's tricky. You know, I, I think on one level, so as far as like, what is there, is there something, you know, I, I tend to think that the sort of public health authorities and epidemiologists and so on who um, were more responsible throughout this period tended to just be more like humble and more yeah. um, more aware of the limitations. Because I think, you know, what, you know, perhaps the most dangerous kind of idea that's come out of all of this is that, um, I mean, the, the first would be a simple point, the second would be a more kind of complicated Girardian point. So the first point would just be this kind of delusion of total control, which I think is yeah. is a is sort of um, instilled by these technologies of simulation, right? Because they they allow you such a, a, you know they they present you with a world that is so minutely sort of manipulable, mm-hmm. right? Through you know the sort of inputs that you um, enter into it, um, that you know it 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 creates this notion of a world that can be kind of controlled to a similar degree of precision. Right. Mm -hmm. But, you know, then the other thing that, so, so I think that, you know, that that there's a way that, that these kind of technologies have, have um, caused people who work with them and who are, you know, given the responsibility by governments of working with them to drastically overestimate the degree to which the the things that they propose could um, really have an impact on something like a, 
highly contagious respiratory virus, right? right? Um, but at the same time, th- th- there's kind of this, um, you know, that th- what's going along with that, and this is the more Girardian point, is this idea that to the extent that 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 these models fail, or that you know, um, that the policies based on these models fail, it is always um, it always must be the blame must always be deflected onto a scapegoat, right? Mm-hmm. And so. Um, in other words, the, the models, I mean, the policies can actually, that are sort of driven by these models can never really fail within the logic that they're being promoted because if they fail, it's because, you know, some people refuse to get vaccinated (laughs) or some people didn't wear their masks above their nose or whatever, you know, it's, so it, it's, um, you know, so I think these things sort of work together, right? This, this kind of, um, fantasy of totalized control, then is part of what generates this kind of these classes of scapegoats who are then blamed for the crisis, right? And so those are the variables that. But I mean, interestingly, there, those are the variables that are seen as as dangerously outside of the control of the institution, and therefore they need to be kind of subjected to more brutal and less, um, you know. And and this is where I think there's one kind of regression, right? Which is that there there's a need to. Um, Take these these variables who who fall outside of the control of these sophisticated simulations and simply, you know, um, engage with them as uh, you know as sort of older form you know without any concern for civil liberties or anything like that right right so you know that this is kind of part of the there's like this regression of technocracy towards these kind of cruder and more brutal modes of power that I think if you go back. 10 or 15 years, you know, there are all these ideas about like nudging and so on. Like yeah. you, you didn't want to ever like, or you, or you wanted to avoid like directly mandating things or do th- doing things that were too assertive or aggressive. Instead, you tried to just manipulate people. At, and and what, that goes what they back call to your the, point about manipulation. The choice right? architecture. Yeah. You, you right, don't tell you, people what to yeah. do. You manipulate the choice architecture. So yeah. I love that phrase. So, <laughs> so I think the degree to which they they realize that these kind of more you know sophisticated models of, of social kind of control that they had developed were, were not working um, in the midst of this crisis, you know, this generated these scapegoats who then had to be, I mean, who had to be subjected to the, you know, the very kind of brutal... Um, uh, you know, mandates and and just you know direct like exclusions from society, right? Where right. You're, you're literally like not allowed to enter public spaces anymore, right? And so, so there is a kind of regression of technocracy into this more, you know, crude and brutal kind of and and like directly kind of anti-liberal sort of mode. Right? It's actually funny that you mentioned nudge. <laughs> and I'm thinking back to like when that book came out, yeah. it was like very provocative and it's like yeah. funny how times change. Yeah. It seems so quaint now, right? It's like, I remember there were these, you know, academic debates and it, it was, it was kind of edgy. It was like, oh wow, you're su- you're suggesting that public policymakers should, you know, control people's behavior in this mm-hmm. kind of uh, condescending right. paternalistic way. Like that, that was the discussion point, the controversy. Uh, it's funny how like, you know, 10 years later, however long it's been, now it's like <laughs> that seems so quaint and naive. Now it's like right, yeah, um, yeah that's fascinating. It, yeah, I mean, I wrote something about this for um, for Unheard last year. Just the the you know because I mean, for example, like the Obama administration was heavily so you know he was closely associated with Cass Sunstein. That's right. Who um you know was one of the people who originated that whole yeah choice architecture notion. And so you know part of what was interesting with the Biden administration coming in and being you know, having many of the same people in it, kind of revol- revolving door style, 
you know, it did really, um, it, it, I mean, there was largely this shift away from that whole sensibility and towards this, you know, encouragement of just like harsh mandates where anyone who wasn't vaccinated could like not access any of society. Right. And so that, you know, that's an interesting kind of regression. I mean, I think, you know, with nudge, what people found creepy was this kind of, you know, just this idea of like an almost subliminal manipulation, right? Where, where right, these, it these, framed itself as libertarian. I think right, it, was, it framed itself it as like, like libertarian paternalism. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And it's a very kind of, um, you know, it was a very like Foucault. I mean, I remember thinking of it at the time. It's like because I mean Foucault. Foucault. The whole idea was that, you know, that I mean, he has this line somewhere about how. Um, the you know the, the the obverse side of the the li- like the new liberties of of mm-hmm. sort of post French Revolution mm-hmm. societies was the new disciplines right so mm-hmm. in other words on one hand you you accorded these formal rights on the other hand you constrained people through these kind of institutional processes mm-hmm. that um, you know so so it I mean so the nudge uh, model seemed kind of similar what was saying is like you don't want to directly mandate things you don't want to directly tell people what they can or can't do you preserve their formal liberty but then at the same time you use this kind these kind of subtle mechanisms to um, constrain their behavior in all sorts of ways yeah that's a fascinating to connect back to uh, Rene Girard's interest in Napoleon you know this book right. battling to the end right. one of the big one of the big discussion points and this is a weird triangle between Napoleon Clausewitz and Hegel basically mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. as many people might know listening to the podcast you know Hegel was very enchanted by Napoleon Clausewitz also uh, a little less you know happy about Napoleon but also, you know, fascinated, intrigued, as Gerard often notes, you are both attracted to and repulsed yeah. by, yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, the object or the model of, of mimetic rivalry. And uh, Clausewitz was kind of like that towards, towards Napoleon. Of course, the, the, the French and German uh, conflict is, is legendary. And so um, it's just kind of interesting what you just said about uh, Foucault, because in a way, Napoleon is well known as one of the greatest conquerors and kind of military geniuses, but one of his secret wep- weapons really was the total mobilization of the population into yeah, war, right. you know, mass, cons- mass, uh, a, a massive army, um, mobilizing normal people into, into warfare. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's actually a kind of an earlier point of, of what you're talking about, the, the, the way that liberties and disciplines, uh, often kind of advance together and, it's just kind of interesting to me that that uh, Gerard sees in this trio of Clausewitz, Hegel, and Napoleon the beginning of the of the the truly modern kind of escalation of of unrestrained violence in yeah. a way. Um, so I, maybe that's neither here nor there, but <laughs> yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, I think <clears throat> that. Um, so I mean, yeah, the other point about Napoleon is he's sort of he's on one hand he's like spreading the Napoleonic code, right? right. So he's kind of offering, um, you know, this this new form of liberty in a sense mm-hmm. to to subject peoples, but then he's also kind of being um, right. But then he's generating. I mean, he's. I mean, and this this kind of goes to like goes back to the point about globalization too, right? He's he's on one hand. Um, He's he's essentially trying to kind of undifferentiate Europe on some level by right. um, by you know, spreading homogenizing yes. this this kind of uh, new model of this new kind of um, you know I, I mean mimetically you know well designed 
sort of notion, which is that there's this kind of simple code that can just be transmitted um, from country to country, right? right? But then at the same time, he's producing as an opposite reaction the, the emergence of nationalism, right? That, that really there is no there is no real nationalism prior to this period in any in any right. recognizable sense. Right. Um, so I mean, but going back to and you know, I think this this also rehearses a sort of theme of the pandemic era, right? Which is the you know the, the tension between globalization and the sort of reassertion of natu- national borders, right? Now, I mean, one thing, you know, you, I'll take a different, going back to your original question, but I think we'll, we'll be able to link it to this. Um, you know, what, what was this whole thing that happened? Yeah. I mean, clearly to me, and this is again, a kind of more Girardian sense, you know, there was a way that, um, you know, you can't really understand what happened, at least in the U S with the pandemic. Although I think also internationally, at least in the, just across the West without understanding the you know, the, without understanding the, the sort of symbolic position of Trump, right. Mm. And more broadly of the kind of new right populism, right. Which is often tied to kind of reassertion of, of sort of nation state, um, you know, uh, concern with the borders and, um, and, true, and kind yeah. of, and so, so I think, you know, what, what's, what's peculiar here is you have this pandemic that, you know, kind of reveals, um, I mean, I wrote something about it very early on that, you know, there were these weird, um, early incidents of people like attacking 5g towers because there was this whole idea that, I mean, speaking of the kind of informational complexes that sprung up around this, I mean, to me, that was one of the most interesting because it was literally, you know, they were making the direct like causal association between the virus and the, and the specific technology kind of information technology and the fact that, you know, both the arrival of the virus and the arrival of these 5g, um, these new 5g networks was linked to the role of chi- the new role of China in the global economy. Right? right. So, so these people, they were actually kind of onto something, in a weird way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, they, or they, they grasped something about, you know, the sort of complex of things that were converging here. But the, so you know, we have Trump, who on one hand is sort of a, you know, a, I mean, along with several other figures, a kind of um, a, an early uh, figure who embodies this kind of rejection of, of globalization to some extent, right, at least symbolically. Um, and so, you know, it would seem that, it, it, so I mean, what what's sort of paradoxical about this is that um, he, he, in the end, doesn't really impose particularly harsh border closures, particularly compared to countries like New Zealand and Australia and, and um, I think, like, South Korea and Taiwan and some of these other kind of Pacific Rim countries. Like, he never really imposes strict border controls. Um, and in fact, you know, early on in the pandemic, it seemed like the real anxiety among liberals was not the virus, but the end of globalization because they thought that he would, you know, use this as the excuse to finally like, Mm. you know, build a figurative wall around the whole nation. Right. right? right. And then he didn't actually do that. Right. Somewhat surprisingly. Um, And so what you ended up with was this weird short circuit by which the virus could ultimately become, I mean, and this is like very, you know, this is, this is like a very Girardian point. Cause I, I mean, I, even when Trump was elected, I wrote about, 
the way that he kind of embodies this like scapegoat king figure, mm. right? Because of all of his kind of violations of taboos and norms. Yeah. You know, it just attracted this kind of, you know, not, not universal, but from, let's say, one half or a bit more of the political spectrum sort of um, universal opprobrium, right? He was kind of the but, first, like, penetration of the immune system, basically. Yeah, uh, you know, yeah. he was like the first, you know, pathogen that really got through the defenses exactly. of the social system yeah. and really put everyone on high alert. Like, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. Right, and then so, you know, so then, you know, for various sort of contingent reasons, it becomes possible to make him... I mean, and this is, again, you know, just the basic scapegoat reading here. I think there was kind of an attempt to say, you know, this was um, <laughs> this was Trump's virus, right? Um, he, he was essentially the carrier and the vector of it. <laughs> and therefore, he had to be ritualistically expelled, you know, through the election and then by being banned from social media. And somehow this would this would be the kind of cathartic... <laughs> sacrificial ending right. right but then of course it didn't work out that way right? right it didn't actually it didn't actually work but it seems really clear there was this attempt right that that you know his his pre-existing status as this kind of as you said almost kind of you know informational pathogen that had somehow penetrated through the defenses right and um had kind of you know was seen as this like contaminant right he was seen as as having kind of polluted um, the the society through right. his presence in it, right? And so I think there was this notion that you could, you know, that, that I mean, an entirely sort of intuitive notion, yeah. But that that you could somehow attach the virus to him, make him the moral agent to whom it could be attributed, right? And thus, by finally expelling him, um, you could sort of make it go away as a. I mean, so this right. is the Oedipus. This is the structure of the Oedipus myth, which. Gerard discusses yeah. in that passage where you have a plague afflicting Thebes. You have to figure out who the cause, you know, the cause of the plague is not simply a scientific cause. Like it's not just a biological cause. It, there's a moral agent, right? Who has brought the plague. Mm -hmm. And then by identifying and expelling that moral agent, you can cure the, the society. Right. That right. does map on fairly well to how Trump was perceived in all this early on. It de and it definitely seemed like even after Trump was removed from the picture, um, it, it definitely felt and that, you know, the sacrifice, in other words, didn't work. Right. Yeah. And this is what Gerard writes all about, especially in this book, Battling to the End, where he's like the whole modern problem is that we instinctually recapitulate the, the, the sacrificial process. We try to end violent issues by applying violence to some scapegoat. And yet it never delivers the, the, the satisfaction that it once did in pre-Christian times. And according to Gerard, that's because of uh, the, the world historical rupture that the Christian revelation introduced into the world. After Christ, that sacrificial logic no longer functions to eradicate the violence that in pre-Christian times, it actually could work to do that. Um, and so wh what happened with Trump, it seems that possibly in a way is that the sacrificial mechanisms kicked in instinctually at the social level. Uh, you know, Trump was uh, sacrificed off of, you know, social media. He was erased. Basically, Trump was basically disappeared. Uh, and that didn't make the virus go away. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, as, as one might as one might have hoped it would. And it did seem like in the following kind of uh, mass drive towards uh, closures to lockdowns and that kind of just like boomer liberal kind of um, soft totalitarian instinct. It did seem like libidinally there was a kind of anti-Trump 
uh, kind of drive to it. Yeah. Like it seemed to me it was kind of that people were unconsciously saying like this Trump problem was 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 really bad. Our social immune system was penetrated by a pathogen. We're very vulnerable. Um, let's lock down all of society now because we have to figure this out. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, like, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it did seem like a lot of anti-Trump libidinal energy was displaced onto uh, oh, yeah. the virus. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, the other thing that's been interesting to see is this kind of, um, you know, this, this constant, you know, the, 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 I mean, this is like, I think what people are talking about with the whole current thing notion, right? That there's <laughs> yeah. this kind of, there's this kind of constant shifting around from one crisis to another, but they all kind of have the same structure, right? Mm. Like they all, really? I think they all, well, they all require some kind of scapegoat, right? They all require there to be some sort of villain who can be identified. And, you know, the, you know, one's investment in the current thing is always in relation to that kind of scapegoat figure. Right. right? So like the war in Ukraine, for instance. Right. So, you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. so and, there and it's Putin. If, right. Exactly. Right. And it was almost like we needed that because now that <laughs> Trump is kind of out of the picture, he was he was always kind of Trump's um, partner in crime anyway. So yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, this he, rapid cy- to... this, this rapid cycling between like global crises where every single person on the Internet, when that current thing is on, mm-hmm. is acting and speaking as if it's the only thing that matters. It's like world historical. This is like an, uh, an, the issue of our lifetime. And then like one week, one week later, they've yeah, just moved yeah, on yeah. to something else. It's really, truly quite schizophrenic and insane. Yeah. And it is exactly what he, what Gerard yeah. talks about <laughs> um, when he talks about how, you know, this, this stuff bubbles up to planetary scale. Yeah. And, you know, the implication that he makes in this book is basically that this process is, it basically dooms humanity to annihilate itself. Yeah. Um, it, it, he's very catastrophic. He's very apocalyptic in, in, in his later, you know, uh, thinking. Um, so, I mean, how do you read that? <laughs> like, do you, do you, do you think that according to the Girardian model, we as a society are now just on this collision course where we are just going to escalate, you know, one current thing after another current thing until we just, kind of suicidally off ourselves off off the planet because according to Gerard there is no end to this escalation right there is no there is no resolution point other than us literally killing all of ourselves off I mean that he basically says that more or less in this book and he doesn't even try to propose a solution he doesn't even really uh try to you know candy coat it he's kind of like uh, and oh, by the way, this is Christian revelation. This is predicted in the Bible. Is basically what Gerard says. Yeah. So I mean, how do you think about how do you think about all of that stuff? It's pretty crazy. Yeah, you know, I I think the, you know, and this is maybe where the sort of more Baudrillardian angle is helpful <laughs> because, you know, I, I, um, I mean, I've always been, you know, in the context of I don't know stupid fights on Twitter and things like that. Like I tend to be on this, you know, to the extent there are sides or whatever, like I tend to be on the side that argues against people who are sort of predicting imminent collapse mm, or, yeah. you know, predicting civil war or things like that. Right. Um, because I do think there's a disjunction between, um, yeah, the, between the kind of informational realm in which a lot, in which the whole kind of current thing unfolds and then you know it's not to say that they're that that those complexes aren't linked to and kind of that they don't also kind of interpenetrate with like whatever things happening phys- in physical reality including right. people dying and things like that in Ukraine but that you know I, I I do tend to think that a lot of the sort of apocalyptic 
dimension really does inhere in this kind of predominantly informational space. Yeah, right. And so that that makes me, um, you know, that that just makes me. I mean, and this relates to something I've been thinking about in relation to Gerard for a while. I mean, and also in relation to like Teal and his you know, kind of use of Girard because, you know, Girard didn't really have much to say about, I don't know, information or communication technology, right? Um, so, you know, I, I suppose the question is what happens when violence, rather than being, um, you know, it's not to say that there isn't plenty of, like, actual flesh and blood violence in our world today, but, you know, but, but, but when rather than inhering primarily to the dimension of mm-hmm. kind of flesh and blood conflict is instead kind of displaced into this realm. No, um, it's a good point. Then, yeah. then what, what does that mean? And and what happens with that? Is that, is that in its, in, in, in its own way, a kind of container? I mean, and, you know, I think this relates to a lot of discussions that people have had over the past, you know, like, I mean, the very normy kind of, you know, like, does the internet cause extremism and things yeah, like yeah. that? Like, you know, the the question is, does it, um, does it function as a kind of container? Yeah. Where, where these sorts of, cause I mean, it's always been clear to me, for example, that like, you know, these scapegoating patterns that you saw unfold. And I mean, as soon as social media really took on its kind of hyper mimetic quality, right. When they added elements like retweet buttons and share mm-hmm. buttons and things like that, where, Suddenly that, you know, I mean, I mean, there's a piece by Jonathan Haidt recently that kind of argued that, you know, that was really, the really pivotal moment was when that kind of hyper mimetic capacity was added. Mm. Um, you know, whereas, whereas in the previous forms, there was a kind of break and limit to the kind of, um, the, the spread of, of sort of social contagion, right, right. on these spaces. So anyway... You know, I, I suppose what interests me here is um, what does it mean when you have a sort of reversion to forms of scapegoating, you know, very blatant forms of of, sca- of kind of mob violence in a sense, but those mo- those forms of mob violence take place in digital spaces predominantly. Right? Yeah, no, and, that's and the, a really the, good point. the kind of death that they produce, even if we think of Trump, right? Like there was a sense in which his expulsion from social media was a kind of you know, equivalent to like being ban- Oedipus being banished from Thebes or something right, like right. that. But, but when when this kind of death or or just of random people who become the subject of pylons and like have to delete their accounts or whatever, you know, th- this does produce this kind of weird. And I think this is something you've thought about before as well. Like, you know, by, by like interviewing people who've been canceled and so on. Like, what's sure. what's that space that they inhabit? But yeah. it's interesting that that it, you know, the whole process unfolds in this kind of, again, sort of hyper real realm. No, it's a really, really good point. Like uh, this was written before social, uh, yeah, before social media, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Right. Or just before, right, right around the same time, yeah. but he wouldn't have had a very developmental yeah. model of that. And I think you make a good point that in a way, all of the, you know, hatred and antagonism and quote unquote violence in the social sphere today that people talk about is like actually on the simulation layer. Um, in I mean, a way. I'd say in the yeah, I mean in the West, particularly in the West anyway, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think the 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 truly apocalyptic violence that um, would map onto a Girardian model would be more things like 
you know, nuclear weapons conflicts and more uh, oh, yeah. other pandemics, yeah. right? Other like coming yeah. biological, right? Because I mean, probably COVID is just a dress rehearsal for the next like super mm-hmm. pandemic that mm-hmm. you know you have to you have to figure like there's going to be a, another pandemic that's actually much more fatal. Um, and so, um, you know, I think the Girardian apocalypticism still makes sense um, when we're thinking about like the the gravest physical oh, yeah. stakes. Um, for the reasons we talked about yeah. uh, with global trade being this kind of undifferentiation and, and standardization of of human beings that allows, you know, um, threats to 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 um, contagiously move around even faster than ever. So I think all that still holds. But you, yeah. you make a really in- important point, which is that the mistake people think is like, oh, we're going to kill each other because of social media conflicts or like there's going to be yeah. civil war because of the woke mobs on Twitter. And like probably not. Actually, there's a case to be made, which I think you made very well, that that's actually very containerized and mm-hmm. actually maybe even a really nice effective stopgap yeah. that prevents people from engaging in violence because they're just like in this like crazy social video game world where they can imagine themselves expelling Trump from Thebes. Yeah, <laughs> really, yeah. they're just like mm-hmm. playing this game and no one really has any more the drive or the will or the the beliefs to do anything in the real world that's very powerful or significant anyway uh, for most people because they're just like glued to their computers. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I, but I think it's, I mean, I'm glad you brought up the nuclear war and contagion where, I mean, so a couple of things that are interesting there in relation to what we've been talking about. So Jean-Pierre Dupuis is, you know, another interesting person mm. who's kind of a a student of, or not literally a student, but somebody who, um, you know, works a lot with Girard's ideas, um, but also has a very different background. He's, you know, actually, I think was trained as an engineer and like was originally writing primarily about cybernetics and stuff. But anyway, um, he, uh, you know, he has some interesting stuff about like new, about um, the nuclear threat where he, he thinks of it. I mean, he, he kind of goes over the history of like discourse about about nuclear weapons during the Cold War, and you know he identifies the, the he he identifies the nuclear threat as this kind of you know uh, modern site of the sacred, right? And again, the sacred is the the um, you know it, it is again this kind of um, stabilizing you know sort of inoculating violence, right? Which enables for a kind of um, which which enables a kind of postponement or um, displacement of this more widespread and destabilizing violence, right? So for Dupuis, you know, the nuclear bomb is basically a new form of the sacred that is generated out of the, out of the process of violence and, you know, of technologically, um, of, of technologically advanced violence that we see in the First and Second World War, mm. right? And so what, what ultimately results is this thing that is so powerful that it is, it is like a God, right? It, mm-hmm. it, it, um, and of course it, you know, it's explicitly kind of famously like kind of evoked in that way by like Oppenheimer, <laughs> um, right when it's invented. So it, it, it yeah, also people it, like Slaughterdyke. Yeah. Who's, who, who's kind yeah. of prime time in his career was at the time when the nuclear debates yeah. were really important. And, you know, in his, in his book, uh, The Critique of Cynical Reason, yeah. you know, uh, he kind of talks about the nuclear bomb as this kind of meditative solution yeah. to, to the problem of ubiquitous cynicism and, and modernity. Uh, it's this kind of strange Zen uh, mm-hmm. kind of um, out where it's yeah. like you reflect on the atomic bomb. And and one has to learn to be able to laugh at the atomic bomb. Basically, right. is, is, is is Slaughter Dyke's kind of fascinating like uh, solution to the, to the yeah. problems of like modern cynicism. Interesting. Yeah. No. I mean, so 
Yeah. So for Dupuis, it's it it really um, it it becomes a stand-in for the sacred, precisely insofar as through the whole notion of nuclear deterrence, right? It becomes both this thing that that kind of hover hovers over us at all times, right? In the way that in an archaic society there was sort of a hyper hyper consciousness of the the sort of all-consuming effect of violence, right. right? But then that was held in check by its kind of ritualized confinement to these sort of spaces that were, you know, carefully um, taken care of by sort of priests and so on. So this is basically the nuclear, um, the nuclear silos and so on, right? And that's fascinating. And, I mean, and so that's very I mean, scary from a Batayan perspective, yeah. because according to Bataille, that energy is just being weighted to be wasted, exactly. basically. Right, right, right. <laughs> Yeah, and then and then the other thing that I w- I would sort of extend this argument maybe to be a little controversial in another way, which is um, you know the, the I mean the the, the lab leak hypothesis right, which I'm not going to pronounce one way or the other on, but it is certainly true that there are all these gain of function research labs right. Wait, but so you should comment on it. It seems probably true, right, to me. I mean, what do you think? What's your take? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it seems, uh, you know, at least plausible. It seems highly plausible. Definitely plausible, but to me, it seems like pretty likely. I mean, that's not a very studied perspective, but where do you come down on it? If you had to guess, obviously, we're all guessing. I I would say it seems to me more like like the preponderance of evidence points towards it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it seems like uh, a little bit more than coincidental that they're doing gain of function research, like right where the site was, right? So, yeah, okay, but it's gone. But so that itself is a very interesting. Um, th- phenomenon, though, because so again, what it suggests, and and right, I mean, if if we wanted to think about like how is humanity going to destroy itself, I think the most likely way it's going to destroy itself, or what I mean, if not nukes, is by um, people in one of these labs engineering a super virus. Right. Um, and the so the irony here is that this is a you know this is precisely the kind of process that is described in myth. Right, which is that the very attempts to evade a certain fate mm, is right. is the process that brings about the fate. So right. Oedipus, you know, he, he um, his parents learn from the oracle that he will, um, you know, bring misfortune. So he they, tries really hard not they, to. They try to get rid <laughs> yeah. of him, um, but then precisely because it's precisely because he um, grows away, you know away from his parents that he doesn't right. recognize his father on the road and kills him. Right. right. And so, in other words, the, 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 the more you try to, to the more right. you try to not <laughs> the let the thing happen, the that's things. what drives it to happen. Right. Yeah. And so in this case, it's very clear. Right. And it, I mean, and it relates to the point about simulation too. Right. Cause in effect, what are these people doing in these labs? Well, they're kind of, si- they're essentially kind of trying to simulate pandemics. Right. Right. Um, they're they're saying what's the worst possible thing that could happen. I mean, the nuclear. But, but then right. by by doing that, they're actually creating the condition of possibility for that to come about. Yeah, that's really good. That that's <laughs> so. that's really um, acute. I mean, structurally, the the nuclear arms buildup is is very similar structurally. Yeah. Right. It's like there is a threat that we can, can perceive as humans in our mind. But once you perceive that it's possible, you kind of have to do it, yeah. basically, <laughs> right? Or else you're going to be, yeah. or else you're going to get. Uh, wrecked by it so it's like w- the game theory of nuclear armament is kind of similar to the to the game theory of gain of function it's like yeah. you kind of know in advance you can see like oh if everyone does this the outcome is going to be bad sooner or later yeah and yet the game theory kind of requires you to do it 
to try to get out in front of it. Yeah. But yeah. then that's what's going to make it happen. So it's like right. it's it's <laughs> it is strange. Um, and it, it does have very Girardian accents because it's kind of like the aporia of of rationality itself in a way. It's like, you know, rationality kind of forces you down these paths that you uh, can't really rationally get off of even when you see the disaster coming. I mean, interestingly, you could even throw into this um, AI research, which mm-hmm. is very similar structurally. Like, you know, I, I um, pay a lot of attention to the effective altruists and the less wrong people and people like uh, Yudkowsky, right? So, right. like, it's very similar structure. It's like, hey, everyone, the threat of AGI is very real and existential. Therefore, we have to put a lot of resources into understanding this stuff and figuring right. this stuff yeah. out. But the AI safety research is pretty much indistinguishable from AI research. <laughs> like, so these people that are like yeah. banging the drum about, we have to make this safe, this is a great threat, are literally the same people who are building the damn thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're super, super smart, you know, reflective people, but they can't get out of that uh, kind of doomed structure in a way. It's it's kind of the same structure as as nukes and as, um, you know, the the production of, of, of pandemics in a way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, Again, I think it, it rings very true from a Girardian perspective because Girard's position is like, yeah, there's only really one solution to this. And it was it was figured out about 2000 years ago <laughs> in the <laughs> right, Christian right, revelation. Right. And so, like, if you don't want to if you don't want to bite the bullet of the Christian revelation, then, like, you're just going to be screwed to doing this over and over again. Yeah. I mean, it also reminds me, I think I remember you bringing up um, the Faust myth a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah, you know which, you know I I think I, so. Here's another like perspective I would I would sort of bring to, s- to some of this. I mean I, th- there are a number of different um, kind of philosophical angles on this, but you know there's I mean one one person I think of here who I I've been trying to write something about, kind of relating his ideas to Girard's, but is um, Bruno Latour mm-hmm. and the, the the book um, We Have Never Been Modern. Yeah, I don't know it well. And I mean because I I think there's a I mean, he's a very interesting thinker, but I think he's also, in some ways, not sufficient. He's one of these people who's not sufficiently attuned to the, who's not sufficiently attuned to violence, I would say. So, um, you know, he has this notion that, um, you know, when when you move from, I mean, there's a complicated operation where, you know, when you move, I mean, so first of all, he he. He has this argument: we have never been modern, right? Right. So, um, which and it's a, it's an I mean, despite how ambitious it is, it's quite a short book, and I recommend it to people. Maybe you could summarize but, it for people. Yeah. yeah. So the basic idea is that um, there's a um, there's a notion in all of the sort of major thinkers who you know believe themselves to be inaugurating modernity that you have to, um, and it's interesting because this has to do with differentiation, right? Mm-hmm. That in the intellectual sphere you have to differentiate between, um, you know, different types of sort of objects of study, right? And so the, the simplest illustration of this, just to pick up on an idea we brought up before, is um, one I would take from some previous anthropology. So, you know, I pointed out that Trump became seen as the kind of, you know, primary moral agent behind the virus, right? And then at the same time, you know, there was this attempt to... Uh, you know, attribute the ravages of the virus to certain groups of of people within society, like um, the unvaccinated. And so this is, um, you know, according to the anthropologist E. Evans Pritchard, this is the basic structure of the of like of accusations of witchcraft mm. that 
you know, in Evans Pritchard's um, argument, um, it the the point of witchcraft is not that um, it it doesn't really necessarily involve any particular supernatural beliefs. Even mm-hmm. it simply involves the structure of taking some physical or natural phenomenon and attempting to find a moral agent who who can be blamed for mm-hmm. it. Right, and so this is very similar to what Girard describes in. Um, in his book, The Scapegoat and elsewhere, right? Which is that, you know, if, if you look at texts from the kind of late medieval into early modern period, when, for example, there's a kind of discrediting of witchcraft accusations, you know, basically what you see is that, you know, you have, a, you have real events like drought, crop failure, um, you know, plague, etc., right? Mm-hmm. And in the earlier period, what's, you know, the the response is that there needs to be some kind of moral agent, right? In other words, another human being on whom this disaster can be pinned, right? That that the disaster that befalls you has to have a moral explanation and not merely a physical causal explanation, right? And so then what happens is that gradually um, it, it comes to be understood that, or and it comes to be accepted that we no longer, um, it, you know, if we have something like a drought or a plague or whatever, we, you know, we should simply look for the physical causes of it mm-hmm. and not worry about finding some kind of moral agent for it, right? And so this is kind of the idealized version of how, um, and, and you know, this Girard's twist on the standard idea of kind of scientific progress here would be that, um, you know, Christianity is actually the source of the insight that allows for this to happen, right? Mm-hmm. Because by saying that scapegoats are innocent, right, um, that that you can't pin the blame for, um, you know, some disaster on some innocent person. Instead, you have to look elsewhere for causes, right? And that's how you start investigating natural causes, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So so Latour's account of what happens in I mean, again, he doesn't think there is really a distinct modernity, but what his account for what people believe they are doing in this period is very similar, right? That they say, okay, over here you have the issue of morality, and over here you have the issue of nature, right? And what happens over here has no relationship to what happens over here, right? They're, they're separate. right? And so this is what Latour calls the modern constitution, right? Mm-hmm. Which is that there's a kind of differentiation between objects of study, you know, inquiring about moral problems in society is one thing, but it's essentially unrelated to inquiries into the natural world. Yeah, that's Descartes. Right? That's very much Descartes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. So, so Latour's, but Latour's argument is that this is, the paradox of this is that the advancement, the, the advancement of, of sort of techno-science that this brings about actually is in the process of causing this constitution to collapse, right? And his example his primary example is the ecological crisis, right? Which is basically where, you know, when you start talking about things like the Anthropocene, you can no longer distinguish between human and non-human, moral and natural, et cetera, mm-hmm. right? And and so, and our discourse begins to reflect that, mm-hmm. right? Because we suddenly see, um, you know, we, we look out at the natural world and we see, hu- we see human moral actions reflected in it, right? So we, we say... Oh, you know, um, this uh, place has been devastated by drought because of this. I don't know the like consumerist selfishness of the West or something mm-hmm. like that, right? So it. Mm-hmm. So his argument is sort of that the, the um, the the logic of of sort of modern techno scientific development depends on this initial separation, but then what it 
you know, in its unfolding, it produces these hybrids of these, these different categories that are supposed to be seen as separate. Right. Right. I mean, the nuclear weapon would be another example, Mm. right. That, you know, you, um, the most advanced, um, expression of both sort of theoretical and practical scientific knowledge turns out to be also the greatest moral crisis of the 20th century. Yeah. And so, so the point here is sort of that there's this, um, that, you know, and, and so he says we have never been modern because his argument is that these these distinctions were always sort of artificial and highly tenuous in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, his argument is that we sort of need a new epistemology that does not depend on making these kind of artificial distinctions that allows us to think the relationship between the natural and the moral without reverting to this kind of, you know, say, witchcraft type thinking where, where essentially right. you're... You're you're engaging in these kind of moral, you know, scapegoating blame games. Yeah, well. yeah. It's almost like a return of the repressed in a way. Yeah. It's like we build this modern epistemological foundation on this big wager that we can just like put out all of the spiritual stuff, all of the moral yeah. stuff. And uh, yeah, it turns out that wager was probably wrong. And uh, over time, it comes uh, it comes rearing its head unexpectedly in, in strange right. ways. Well, and this is also, I mean, this is also kind of dialectic of enlightenment in another mm. sense, right? That's kind of central to that argument, right? That that in li- that the, the end the end point of enlightenment is actually a kind of reversion to myth. Yeah, and that's right. So yeah, so I think you know there are different kind of threads of this. I, the one that interests me most is really this, um, you know, which which I think ties these together with with Girard is is this point about um, because you know as I said like I think it's you can't understand the pandemic response without seeing it as this kind of reversion to this logic of of witchcraft where um, you know this I mean I mean and, okay there are two levels to this right one <laughs> it's the the sort of moral logic around it has has always been this um, you know need to find scapegoats right um, and 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 this is how it's been framed um, from very early on. But then on the other hand, the fact that if we do accept um, the the likelihood of the lab leak, then you know there is also some sense that this is not this is not just a brute natural phenomenon that um, and and so this is why I think again the kind of Zizek and like Benjamin Bratton and other you know th- this is like why they're kind of doubly wrong right mm. because they th- their whole idea is sort of that you know there are these brute natural facts out there that you know threaten the survival of humanity and so we need to like band together um so I think they're wrong in the sense that they're they're ultimately kind of epistemologically naive in relation to what I was mm, yeah was saying um and second of all they're also um, they're also dishonest about the nature of um, the that, that I think all of the people who claim that this is like an opportunity for solidarity are not recognizing their own engagement in scapegoating. Okay, fascinating. And, and are kind of in denial about it. Fascinating. So. Well, that was a, that was a really <laughs> cool kind of a theoretical overview of uh, what the pandemic was. That, yeah, yeah, that, that was fascinating. Um, we have more videos to record today, so I, yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to overtax you since yeah. I, I got to put you to work for the next few hours. So I think that's as a good a place to yeah. wrap it up okay. as possible. Sure. I'll put sure. a link uh, to your blog in the show notes, outsidertheory.com, and your podcast also, Outsider Theory. People can check that out. Yeah, some people might be interested in my 
anonymous contributor's recent essay on particularly on the relationship between the logic of vaccination and scapegoating in okay. Gerard. Okay, great. Um, great. So yeah, check it out. Outsidertheory.com. I'll yeah. put links in the show notes. And um, yeah, people watching on YouTube or listening on the podcast, you, you can expect more content around this stuff because uh, Jeff's here in Austin for a few days. And we're going to be shooting a bunch of videos about this kind of stuff about Gerard um, because we're getting ready for the, the next cohort of the Gerard course, which is going to start at the end of July. So um, yeah, thanks for Jeff. Thanks for this, Jeff. Thank That's fun. Yeah. yeah. All right. That's a wrap. Hey, what's up? If you enjoyed this video, take a second to subscribe to this YouTube channel. We publish videos like this several times a week. And also, if you're interested in studying the work of Rene Girard on your own, we made an awesome, totally free 18-page study guide that you can download at girardcourse.com. It's expertly curated. It's in a logical sequence that's going to help you master his entire body of work at your own pace. You can go ahead and get that at girardcourse.com. All right, that's all I got for you. Over and out. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You made it all the way to the very end, so you must really like the show. In that case, I would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review. That's otherlife.co forward slash review. And it'll send you an Apple Podcasts. Just leave a review. You can be honest. Tell me what you really think. I'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show, and I'm really trying to grow out the podcast. So thanks for listening, and thank you for leaving a review. I really appreciate it.